you know, I reckon, okay, I realize I'm complaining. All right, time to get off and get back. What can I do? You know, I say the magical radical responsibility question is, what can I do? Because no matter how much I'm stewing and sense of powerlessness and it's not my fault and all these problems and, you know, it's horrible. My boss is a jerk. And I can just take a breath and go, okay, this sucks. What can I do? Immediately, I'm back in the mindset of possibility, solution-based thinking. And there's a million things we can do. There's a million ways we can approach life, approach any individual, approach a boss, approach a colleague, approach a situation. We're back in a solution-based thinking. We're focusing our energy where it can do the most good with our own process, with our own behaviors, with our own thought, and with our choices. What are the choices I can make to move my life forward here? What is going on, everybody? Welcome back, guys, this week to another amazing, very, very, very powerful conversation here on the Superhuman Life. Before we jump into today's conversation, guys, I just want to start off by letting you know how incredibly grateful and thankful we are to have you here with us. As we've been talking about for these last few weeks, uh, this show is beginning to take off where we've seen a level of growth in these fat in these past few weeks and months uh, that we haven't experienced before. And, and it's all because of you guys out there. So I want to send out a an expression of gratitude and thankfulness just for every single person, whether this is the first show that you're tuning in or you've been with us since the beginning back in July of 2019. Every listener, every viewer of this show means the world to us and we take none of that for granted here. But men, do we have a necessary conversation today? Let me ask you, do you ever find yourself playing the victim? Do you ever find yourself passing off blame? Do you ever find yourself pushing off responsibility in your own life. Well, brother, I'm telling you, we have the person that wrote the book on responsibility with us today. Not just responsibility, but radical responsibility. So we're gonna dive deep into the victim mindset. We're gonna dive deep into what it means to take radical responsibility for your life. Man, today I have with me none other than Dr. Fleet Mall. Fleet Mall is an author and renowned growth mindset and meditation teachers who delivers his training programs and seminars around the world, both in in-person and online through his HeartMind Institute. He's an executive coach and inspirational speaker and social entrepreneur that works at the intersection of personal and social transformation. Now, Dr. Fleet founded the Prison Mindfulness Institute and National Prison Hospice Association, catalyzing two national movements while serving a 14-year mandatory minimum federal drug sentence from 1985 to 1999. Dr. Maul developed a radical responsibility empowerment model that embraces 100% ownership for each and every circumstance that we face, free of blaming oneself or others. Fleet is a Roshi Zen master in the International Zen Peacemaker Order and Archara senior Dharma teacher in the global Shambhala meditation community. He's the author of Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fiercely Live Our Higher Purpose and Becoming an Unforceable, an Unstoppable Force for Good in the World. So we dive deep into that 14-year prison sentence. What led him? How did this person that has now had such incredible change in the world and has been a catalyst for so much change in the world, what was going on in the previous life? Like what was going on in the previous version? So we unpack that a little bit. We talk about some of the transformative work that began in the present. And then we dive deep into the responsibility thing. We dive deep into victimhood. Why are, why are we passing off blame? Why aren't we taking responsibility? Is a part of what makes us human? Is it something that we all struggle with? And how can we begin to kind of work through that? And then we talk about one of the things that really jumped out about his work was this mindfulness meditation approach to responsibility. It's completely, not completely counterintuitive, but it's, it's a very different from the, from the ownership, from the responsibility message that I believe the majority of us have heard. So guys, this is a conversation that you're going to want to make sure you're tuned into. Grab a notebook, share it with your buddies, but let's get into today's conversation, guys. How to move past blame into taking radical responsibility for your life and for your actions with Dr. Fleet Mall. Hope you guys enjoy. Dr. Mall, welcome to The Superhuman Life. Hey, thank you for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, no, I'm really, uh, really looking forward to to this conversation. Like I was telling you uh, before we got started here, I just think that there's um, so much in line with with your work, your messaging, and what we're trying to create and build over here, uh, both with our podcast and with our company, Rebuild Recoaching. You know, I've, I've I've had the opportunity to get started on your book. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, my goal was to have it done before speaking with you today. I'm just a little behind on on some of that, but I've really loved your 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 take on on responsibility. I mean, I'd be completely honest. Like when I first jumped into it. Um, a couple of the 
first couple chapters, like really kind of threw me off. Like, like, where's all this mindfulness and meditation stuff? Like, how is this aligned with extreme ownership? And, you know, much of what is being taught, uh, you know, in the, in the personal responsibility kind of ownership field, you know, with your Jocko Willings or, you know, yeah, exactly. it's, it's, it's been a big, it's been a big buzzword for, for a few years now. Um, so I'm really excited to kind of dive into to your book and your work. But I think before we do that, I think it's important to kind of set some context on, on who you are and what led you here. Um, like I'll share with you, you have a fascinating story and we could spend the entire conversation uh here today talking about that but i definitely want to add some context before we dive into your work so um i'll let you kind of pick maybe the point in in your story and in your journey where you think it would really be relevant for us to start um and we'll kind of talk about you know what led you to this point where you had this radical transformation um and kind of got you into the work that you're doing now so yeah you know fleet take us take us back in time a little bit and uh we'll, we'll kind of start the conversation from there Sure. And we will circle back on, you know, what, what you ran through in the first few chapters of the book, you know, you kind of, well, what's all this mindfulness, emotional intelligence, basic goodness and so forth. But, and I love Jocko's book. I think it's a great book. I, I share it with my business clients. Uh, but the one thing I think distinguishes radical responsibility from some of the other things in the kind of responsibility, ownership, mental toughness, uh, you know, that kind of uh, space is a lot of them talk about doing it, but they don't necessarily get into the deep, how do you do this? How do you actually get to that space? How do you actually transform your own psychology, neurobiology into that space? And so that's very much what the radical responsibility journey is about the inner work of how you get to the place where you can actually take ownership at that level without turning it into self-shaming, uh, without re-traumatizing yourself. Actually, how do you develop the resilience and the well-being and the self-confidence and the empowerment to actually embrace ownership at a radical level, Riley. So that's what the journey is all about. And, you know, so that that uh, dovetails into my background a bit. I've, you know, kind of been a kind of a spiritual seeker ever since I could remember. Actually, when I was, uh, I remember being a, a, a young child and life being really vivid and magical and full of awe. And, and sometime around when I started school, you know, maybe went to kindergarten, like at six years old or whatever age it was. And and it's just like it all went away and things just went to gray tones. And I wasn't happy with that. And um, I was always trying to get back to that place where I felt plugged into life and things that vivid, felt vivid and real. And that took me down a lot of twisted roads. You know, of course, I, I was came of age as a baby boomer in the 50s and 60s. So, you know, I went headlong into the countercultural movement of that time looking for. But even before then, just early adolescence, you know, early experimentation with sex and alcohol and then drugs and you know, all those things they had, uh, there was some quality of something real about them, but you know, that there's a mirage like quality and, you know, maybe it's a mixed bag. Uh, but if you, if you got a big hole in your gut, like I did back then and, and addictive propensities, then there's a lot of baggage and a lot of shadow aspects of that. Right. And so, you know, that took me down a lot of roads and, and actually I ended up earning my way into a, a, a federal prison sentence for drug trafficking. And, uh, I went in in 1985 and came out in 1999 so, but, you know, I've always been kind of on that journey of, of trying to discover something that really felt real to me. In fact, at one time, um, I left you, I, I became so disillusioned, e even after being involved in the counterculture and, you know, there was some amazing things in, in the mid sixties, late sixties, and then things kind of shifted into kind of a darker world, really. The, the bloom was off the rose in terms of the, 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 you know, the, um, that whole kind of counterculture love revolution thing, Right you know, started slipping into harder drugs and, you know, the whole scene just got darker. And and plus what was going on at the country at the time in the country politically, Nixon got reelected for the second time. I, I just had to leave the country and, and I ended up living outside the country in South America. And I was really trying to escape from everything, um, and including being involved in the drug scene and all the rest of it and still looking for something real. And somehow I had some idea in my head that I would find that in Peru. I don't even know where I got that. But when I, it took me a long, it took me a year traveling to Central America and so forth, a lot of different adventures. But I finally got there and there was something incredibly magical about that place, just environmentally. I mean, you'd wake up in the morning and it was as if you'd had taken some psychoactive substance, but you hadn't, right? It was just the place had that kind of energy and luminosity to it. And I remember the first time I came back home after being down in Peru for about a year and a half. I came back, I kind of ran out of money. I went back to the States, you know, to make some money. Um, and uh, I got back and I, I wasn't able to bring that with me. You know, it was definitely environmental. I couldn't bring it with me. I found that really disheartening because it's really always what I was looking for. And um, so, again, you know, that just kept taking me, taking me on this journey. And, and I was somebody that came of age with a big hole in my gut 
mostly alcoholism in my family of origin and uh, just a lot of splitting. You know, I had a, a wonderful, beautiful mother who suffered from alcoholism and once or twice a week or every other week, she went from being this incredibly intelligent, beautiful mom uh, and artist into being this uh, rageaholic, scary, crazy rageaholic that was just turning our whole house and world into, into insanity. And when my father wasn't around, she'd come after me. And so, you know, it creates a real splitting in your psyche, right? And this was just her suffering. I mean, she grew up in such a repressed environment as a as a woman of her era that the only way she could, you know, get, and release that repression and anger that was all in there was was when she would drink. And most times she didn't, but she'd give in and drink and then, you know, off to the races. So, so she had a tremendous amount of suffering, but it created a lot of splitting in my life. And so I graduated from high school in 1968 which was an incredibly tumultuous year in U.S. history with the, the the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, the Kent State killings. I mean, a whole incredible social upheaval, um, you know, maybe similar to what was going on with the Black Lives, has been going on with the Black Lives Matter movement and all the protests following the George Floyd killing and all of that. Um, but at any rate, you know, I just, I was a classic angry young man with a big hole in my gut trying to fill it up with anything I could you know, drugs, sex, alcohol, whatever I could. And, you know, so I was just right for it. I went off to a state university and went headlong into the counterculture and got into IV drug use and very serious drug use and then small time drug dealing, like a lot of people do to support your habit and so forth. And as I said, I eventually escaped that and went to South America and the drug thing seated in, you know, receded into the background a bit. It was mainly adventure and exploring indigenous culture and the archaeology and the ruins and the history and just connecting with the magic of those places. You know, the drug scene was still around on the periphery. And eventually I fell into small scale uh, drug smuggling as a way to just keep living out the side of the system. I wasn't really trying to rewrite. I justified it with all this us versus them thinking. Right. And um, uh, but eventually that all caught up with me along the way. I went back to get my master's degree and met my Buddhist teacher, my first teacher. I, I kind of discovered I was a Buddhist in, in high school uh, when I first read some teaching. The first thing that ever made any sense to me and. I grew up in Missouri. There wasn't a lot of that going around, but, you know, I eventually found my way with books and everything. And I kind of zeroed in on the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, living in South America with a few books that were published at that point. And then I heard about the founding of Naropa University in 1974, which was founded by my Tibetan Buddhist teacher, the iconic Trungpa Rinpoche, one of the leading figures that brought Tibetan Buddhism to the West and an incredible artist. And, you know, it was a, you know, he, he had relationships with people like William Burroughs and Dylan and, and Allen Ginsberg, you know, he's just this iconic figure of that era. And um, so I got deeply into that path, but I still had this shadow stuff going on that I kept a secret from him, a secret from my community. And I'd disappear once or twice a year, make enough money uh, that I could keep living outside the system and keep my marriage problems at bay and all the rest of it. And I knew I had to get out of that life. I wanted out of that life. But before I could untangle it, I ended up in prison. And so the reason just to explain that is I arrived at prison. My story's a little different than a lot of prisoners. When I arrived there, I had a lot of skills. I'd had a lot of training. I've been trained. I've been involved in deep Buddhist practice for a long time, which kind of begs the question, well, how did you end up in prison? But it's spicy. I say I was severely compartmentalizing my life, right? I was doing very sincere practice, going off and doing retreats, traveling with my teacher, and, you know, but compartmentalizing, not really applying it to the entirety of my life and having not really dealt deeply with some of my underlying addictions and problems and so forth. So I end up in prison. But nonetheless, I've got a lot of experience. I've been trained as a Buddhist teacher. I have a master's degree in Buddhist and Western psychology. So I came in with a lot of skills. And when I got there, I immediately realized that, well, even when, when I got sentenced, I was originally sentenced to 30 years with no parole. I was a so-called kingpin statute. And to this day, I don't feel I was in any way, shape or form a kingpin, but that's kind of the way it works. They, they choose one person, everybody else testifies against them. You become the kingpin and you do a lot of people's time. And I did a lot of people's time for them. <laughs> I hope they're grateful. Um, so, um, you know, uh, the first thing that hit me was my nine-year-old son was now going to grow up without a dad. And I was, that was absolutely devastating. I went through a complete dark night of the soul around that. I was just absolutely devastated. And I became radically dedicated, get all the negativity out of my life and try to do something with that time. I didn't know if I would survive. I was 35. I was the paper the next day said I'd be 65 before I have any chance of release. And, you know, it felt like my life as I'd known it was completely over. I'd completely torched my life and and harmed a lot of people and and really hurt my family and let down my community. And and my son was not going to grow up without a dad. And so, you know, I, I want to do anything I could to leave a better legacy for my son than just his dad went to prison or maybe his dad died in prison. Right. So, 
So that became my monastery, my ashram time. I became radically dedicated to use every minute of the day for personal development, self-development, and also service. So I got a job teaching school. I taught school for 14 years. I ended up being in for 14 years because actually I was lucky. I was sentenced prior to 1987 when you still got a lot of good time. I didn't realize this until I'd been in for a while. I figured it out. But you get it. if you stayed out of trouble, you got a lot of good time. So I realized on 30, I'd serve 18 and a half if I stayed out of trouble. If you get in trouble in prison, they just start taking that good time away in chunks. And you can do, you know, some guys go, I'm doing my son day for day. Like it's nothing they're proud of. You know, so, it's kind of, I don't know about that. But, you know, um, so but 18 and a half still felt like forever. And then on appeal, my son, you know, the appeal takes two or three years to go through the court. They knocked off one count aggregate sentence one down to 25. Then I knew I'd serve 14 and a half. And it still felt like forever. And that's what I served was 14 and a half. But I used that time, uh, just radically used it for personal development and self-healing. I, I got very involved in 12-step work to deal with my addictions, uh, was a leader in that and a teacher in that and a guide in that for, for many other prisoners for 14 years. I taught school with my day job, helping other prisoners learn to read, get their GED, study for college classes. Um, started a meditation group in a chapel, taught meditation twice a week, started all kinds of other programs. And then with another prisoner, launched the first hospice program in a prison anywhere in the world that we're aware of. And this was the federal maximum security federal prison hospital in the height of the AIDS epidemic. So men were being brought there from all the federal penitentiaries and dying of AIDS and cancer and liver disease and all kinds of things. And so I spent most of my meal breaks and a lot of my weekend time uh, and evenings up in the hospital taking care of men who were dying. So I was really devoted to service. But, you know, also you had to be back on your unit at nine o'clock every night. They they locked you down. And then uh, so, you know, I spent all that time practicing meditation, studying. Then I would get up at 4 a.m., practice more until it was time to go to breakfast and work. So I, I was living this really disciplined, austere life of both practice and service. And I did that for 14 years. I also now training myself for whatever contribution I'd be able to make to life if I ever got out, if I survived the time. And I had no surety. I, I mean, men were dying all around me in that place. And I had patients that were healthy. You know, most of them came in from other penitentiaries for treatment. But I had some people in general population there like myself get sick and end up in the hospital and die. In fact, we had two hospice volunteers, healthy hospice volunteers, got sick and ended up dying, becoming hospice patients while I was there. And there was also death by violence there. So, you know, I had no surety that I would that I would survive that time, but I knew that if I did, I was going to get out around fifty. I'd be fifty year olds when I got out. Uh, the IRS had a judgment against me for three hundred thousand, um, and you know, pretty tough to start your life as an ex con at fifty with three hundred thousand dollars in debt. And uh, I knew I was really going to have to work, so I spent those fourteen years just training myself and training myself and showing up and serving. And I'm very grateful that that. Uh, has led to a life of opportunity. From the day I got out, I've had nothing but opportunity to travel the world and serve and and share. The connection with radical response really quickly is when I got there, I realized I was in this world of extreme negativity. You know, when you first met, meet another prisoner, the kind of ritual was you you go out and walk, you know, lunch break, hey, let's go out and walk the track. So you go out and walk the track, big circle, you can walk around on the track outside and and, you know, they share their victim story. You share your victim story. Oh, my, my fall partner did this. Yeah, my lawyer screwed me over. The, 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 you know, and, you know, after I went to that ritual two or three times, I didn't want to hear my own story anymore at all. And I really didn't want to hear other people's stories, which wasn't very compassionate, but it's just not where I wanted to live. Fortunately, I had enough background and training that I knew I didn't want to, I didn't want to come out of prison angry, bitter with a big victim story. I didn't want to live that way while I was there. And but that was the world I was in. It was also a lot of racism, a lot of anger, a lot. Of, it's a very aggressive world. And, you know, on a, on a good day, maybe you only have a dozen severely demeaning incidents with your fellow prisoners or the or the staff. Right. You know, just really dehumanizing, demeaning things. It's it's a rough environment. And I knew I was going to have to really take care of myself and really work not to take on those mindsets. Right. And I also realized that I had earned my way into that place, even though there were lots of people I could, you know, share the blame with. I did a lot of people's time. When the government prosecutes you, they don't play by the rules. They break all the laws. They play hardball. So, you know, if I had chose to focus on all that, I could have my huge victim story going. But I fortunately, I'm very grateful. I just realized that was a dead end and that my only way, the only way I was going to, you know, get through, either survive that time and come out as a, a human being that could do something with my life was to take like 200% ownership of having got myself in there and what I was going to do at the time I had while I was there. 
And I use meditative practices to really heal any animosity, potential animosity I felt towards anyone. You know, the the agents, the prosecutors, my fall partners, anybody that testified. I really worked at dissolving all that. And I managed to do that. And, and I didn't come out of prison with any enmity towards anyone at all. In fact, I didn't live in prison with any enmity towards anyone at all. So it was it was that approach. And I also saw one thing I learned from my my Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Tung Che, he had a real focus on being skillful. What's skillful? What works? As opposed to what's right or wrong. Now, it's not that he didn't have a sense of morality and what's right or wrong. But rather than getting into blame and right and wrong and accusation, it was more like, how do you work with the world skillfully? What actually works? So I had that mindset. So when you're in a maximum security prison, it's a total institution, which means it's like a totalitarian state. Resistance is futile. And this had a psychiatric wing where if you resisted things in that place, you'd be on a concrete bunk, four point restraints, being hosed down at night, pump full of halidol or thorazine, literally. You could not buck the system there. And when you asked anybody, any staff or guard, anybody, you know, could we try this? Could we start that? Can we have that? that? No. What, and if you're audacious enough to say why, which could get you in trouble, they always had a story. Well, we used to do that. Some inmate abuse or this or that. They always had a story why we don't do that anymore. So how do you get anything done in an environment like that? Right. And I really wanted to show up and serve and make a difference and contribute. You know, most branch family, most people, when they're going through prison, they just try to kind of numb out into some routine and not feel it, not be there, sleep as much as they can just to get through this time. Everything's good is out there. And this is dead time, downtime. We just want to get through it as, you know. I, I didn't want to do that. I knew I was going to be there a long time. I didn't want to throw away a big chunk of my life. I, I wanted to experience it. I was a practitioner. I had, fortunately, I had all that background. And so I wanted to be alive and feel it as painful as it was. And, uh, you know, so so that that was my journey in there. And through that approach and working with people skillfully, I was able to start to uh, really start two national movements, the prison hospice movement. And it really catalyzed. I mean, we started the first hospice in a prison. Then I started National Prison Hospice Association from inside the prison. And today there's, by the time I graduated, I graduated, I think I graduated from prison university. By the time I got out, um, there were like 70 to 75 prison hospice programs in the country, state and federal prisons. We had radically changed end of life care in prisons and really impacted medical care altogether. And then I also started Prison Dharma Network, now called Prison Mindfulness Institute, to support prisoners who are interested in meditation and the people going into prisons with meditation programs. So those became, you know, those are thriving. Prison Mindfulness is a huge organization now and, and, and supports prisoners around the world and now works with first responders, with police, with corrections, with probation and parole. Uh, we just did a big first responder resilience summit last um, October. And so, you know, a lot of now, were those revenue work. generating businesses at the time. Like, were you like, were you running it like a, yeah, I was running like a it from the inside. Or... These are nonprofit organizations nonprofit, and they, they okay. remain relatively small while I was inside. They've really grown, grown, especially prison mindfulness, really grown since I got out in 99. But I, I ran it from inside prison with the help of people on the outside. And, you know, you're not supposed to be able to do that. If I gone to them and say, hey, I want to start an offer, they would say, shut up, get back in your cell. Right. You know, but I did it and they didn't stop me. Right. And uh, I remember one time, um, CBS, uh, 60 Minutes, was starting a second show that was going to be on Wednesdays. So they were sending teams of producers and, you know, and camera people and so forth around the country to, to check out stories. So they came there. They wanted to interview me about the work I was doing, especially the hospice work and some of the other work. And once it was going to get approved and everything, this associate warden calls me into his office. He goes, what the hell is going on, Maul? What's this? I hear about this. You're some CBS or you're some kind of do-gooder his hospital. How did all this happen? I go. I don't know, boss, you know, just, <laughs> just, but, you know, you're not supposed to be able to do any of that stuff. And this catalyzed two national movements today. And I don't say that to pat myself on the back. I just say, here's one of the most powerless situations a human being could be in. And if you're willing to work with this idea of radical responsibility and work with being, you know, just skillful and professional and kind to people, and you see everybody is a human being, no matter what role they're in, everybody's got a human being button. Everybody's got a way that, you know, they'll connect uh, there's nothing you can't accomplish. I love that. And, 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 and I think it shows that, you know, we're not just talking theories and ideas here. It's not like you just read a bunch of textbooks and you kind of developed a system. It's like all of this was birthed out of, like you said, one of the most difficult periods of time that any, you know, any human being can go through maximum security, totalitarian prison. Like, but, but here you are like taking 100, 200% ownership in that, in that moment. And you've, 
begin to change the world from inside a place like that. I think it, I think it's just showing like how powerful the human spirit can be when directed in and in, in, in put into something productive and something service oriented, because for you, it wasn't about building a business. It wasn't about building a nonprofit. It was about helping yourself first and getting, you know, getting responsibility for your actions and the point that you got to. But more importantly, I think you're trying to do it for everybody else because you saw that you had a set of skills. You talked, you touched on skill sets there that could help in and contribute to these other, these other inmates. Yeah, I There's really so many things I want to. I'm sorry, Emmett, but um, my Tibetan teacher, Chung Kurm Shea, you know, I was very close to him and, um, and even though I had kept this shadow part of my life secret from him, I eventually revealed it shortly before I got indicted. And he said, boy, you've created quite a situation for yourself. He actually encouraged me to turn myself in because I was trying to figure out, should I go on the run? Should I turn myself in? He said, well, if you're on the run, it's going to be really hard for you to continue your practice and for us to relate. And uh, But even if you're inside for a long time, you can practice and take advantage of that situation and we can continue to work together. So I did it. The first time I ever took anybody's advice in my, in my life. And I, I've actually never regretted it. I was scared of both. I was I wasn't happy about the idea of going down the run. I didn't really have any money at that time. That shows I wasn't much of a kingpin. I was already broke. And um and and but the idea of going to prison was pretty terrifying too. I'd seen a lot of prison movies and it was pretty pretty scary prospects of going to prison for a long time. So um but at any rate, my experience of him was he was someone who lived twenty four seven in service of humanity. I never saw him have any other agenda other than being in service of humanity. So then I find myself in the middle of this hell realm. I remember when I first arrived at the federal prison, I'd been in a county jail for seven months. And then, I, and then they toured me around a few different prisons on the way to get, they do this kind of diesel therapy. And then you finally get somewhere. And um, so uh, in a county jail was quite a hell realm in of itself. But I, I get to this prison and it was a relief because it was a big place, great big, huge place, 1300 prisoners and lot, 10 different buildings and all connected by underground tunnels. You could walk around, there were yards. But as I got there, and I start walking around, you know, I felt like I was in a Fellini movie, uh, a Fellini movie, because, you know, here's guys walking around doing the, the Thorazine two-step, men being, uh, men who are blind, being guided around, men being in a maximum security prison and you're blind, uh, men being driven, pushed around in wheelchairs who were completely emaciated from AIDS or cancer or, or who were paraplegic or quadriplegic. I mean, the level of suffering, it was just a world of such suffering right you know and it became my world and it became you know something i kind of but initially it was just i was so shocked and and but the good thing about that was when i arrived there i was full of the drama of my own situation i just been given a 30-year no parole sentence as you can imagine i was pretty wrapped up in my own stuff but i i saw this world of suffering and it just completely broke me out of that and then the influence of my teacher and my family but everything kicked in okay how can i serve here and that just became, you know, that became the driving force. What, what can I, how can I serve? There's so much suffering here. What can I do? And, and I'm very grateful for that. I don't take credit for that. It was just my background. It was my teacher's influence, my family's influence. And, and so I was, you know, just in the right place at the right time to be pulled into that kind of service. Yeah, I want to I want to zero in here on this on this moment, though, like when when you were still, you know, caught up in the drug trade and, you know, you're kind of living this kind of parallel life. And I've heard you talk about it in some of your other interviews. It's like you described it as this cognitive dissonance. Like you were very aware at the time, this one part of my life is not fully aligned with who I believe myself to be. And I think, you know, the vast majority of us out here and the vast majority of the people, you know, the men hearing this right now have something in their life that isn't aligned. They're they're whether it's an addiction, whether it's a compulsive behavior with pornography, whether it's, you know, they're they're sending text messages to a woman that, you know, they probably shouldn't be, or maybe even they're just they're just glancing upon something that they know they shouldn't be. So we all struggle with this on a daily basis. So what was the internal conversation for you back then? And then knowing what you know now, like as a trained expert and all the work and all the experience that you had done, if you could get your hands on younger fleet. Like, what would be the conversation like in the moment, brother? Like, how would you how would you make that change, or what would that conversation look like? Well, I don't with know the, what the it younger version to of got, to get through the younger fleet back then. I was pretty much of a knucklehead, but man, I, I'm with you, brother. I had secret life within secret life within secret life. I had mm. so many secrets going on, I couldn't keep them straight myself. Right? I remember I had one of my a good friend who was also a, a smuggling partner, but he, he was he was a really good human being. Unfortunately, he went to prison as well. He was the only other person who didn't testify. And when he got out, they wouldn't let him. They 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 forced him into doing his parole in some little town. He had no opportunity. I don't know what happened, but he died about a year after he got out of prison. It was heartbreaking for me. Right. But I remember he used to say about me, he says, you know, you keep everybody on a need to know basis. <laughs> you know, he says, you're like Mr. Secret, you know, and it was, you know, all my relationships were out of integrity. 
You know, I, I cheated on every girlfriend I ever had. Uh, I really tried to make my marriage work for a while. I really did. I very sincerely. But then, you know, it wasn't working and I was off to the races again. And, you know, I wasn't honest with my own spiritual teacher. I mean, I wasn't honest with myself. And it was all around all this. It was all driven by all this pain and trauma and addiction and just, you know, and, you know, it, it was so it was so confusing, you know, so confusing. And I'm so grateful that I don't have any of that in my life right now. I'm, I, I haven't had for a long time. I'm an open book. What you see is what you get. There's no secrets. There's no I don't care. Anybody can, you know, anybody can grab my phone, my computer, anything. I just open it up. Go look at it. I don't care. You know, I don't have any secrets anymore. And and, uh, and um, it, it's such <laughs> I, I, I could cheer up. It's such a really good. It was so painful to live that duplicitous life. Even though, you know, back then I had a sense of being a good person. I was doing my best. I was trying, you know, I wasn't like a horrible, evil person out trying to harm people at all. Not at all. You know, I, I, most people didn't think of me as a jerk, uh, you know, or anything like that. But I just had all this, this, these secret lives going on, you know, and all this lack of alignment. And, and so I self-medicated around that. You know, I just self-medicate. I mean, it, it, when I'd be off in retreats, traveling with my teacher, that world was so powerful that I'd kind of settle in that world and be okay. And then all the rest of my crazy life just wasn't there. But then I come back into my daily life around that cognitive dissonance. I was using alcohol and Coke and everything else to self-medicate. Yeah. And there's, there's so much aligned with, with, with our stories here. You know, the audience obviously has heard, you know, heard my story. Like I I'd reached this point, you know, I was 35, I believe at the time I had started in, you know, I was a successful business owner, ran a couple different, you know, businesses, had some failures, had some success. I was a competitive bodybuilder. Like I graced the covers of magazines. I'd reached the pinnacle of, of bodybuilding development. You know, I was in somewhat of the personal development space. Like I was spreading a positive message through our fitness company, but I wasn't fully honest with everybody. And I would have this cognitive dissonance every single day. Frank, you're lying about your porn use. You're lying about your drug use. And it wasn't until that moment that I had real radical honesty with one started with one person. So I think what I'm hearing you saying, like if you're struggling in a, in a moment or season like this right now, where you're feeling this cognitive dissonance, like it's got to start with just true radical honesty with at least one person. Would that be kind of your advice there is like find somebody in your life, whether it's a mentor, whether it's a coach, whether it's a spiritual leader or pastor or somebody that you can just put all the cards on the table. And I think a lot of times, for men that are struggling with shame, it's just that first conversation of putting it all on the table that a lot of that shame begins to lift itself off of you because you realize like, yeah, I do have these shortcomings. I do have these things about me that maybe aren't fully aligned, but it's given me the opportunity now by talking about it to begin to work through it. What are your, what are your kind of thoughts around? Absolutely. Around I mean, that? it's incredible, incredibly valuable. And, you know, in, in, in the, uh, I was very fortunate doing my 12 step work inside prison. We had these wonderful people that came in from outside and one, one man became my sponsor and a dear friend. We just lost him two years ago to cancer. Um, but amazing, amazing human being that came into that prison every week for decades, right. Serving the men there. And, um, you know, so doing my fourth step was an, an incredible relief, you know, to be able to just just write it all down, the whole, the good, bad, and the ugly of the whole thing, the whole horror of the whole thing, and just share it with another human being is is incredibly therapeutic. And you have to find somebody that you you really feel can hold that and not shame you for it in the slide, not even unconsciously shame you for it, you know. And 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 also, I think equally important with finding someone to share with is finding some way to begin to heal yourself in a context of tremendous self-acceptance of self-compassion. We're all human beings. We're all struggling. None of us invented being an addict, right? It, it just comes out of our conditioning, our childhoods, and we could blame our parents, but we'd have to blame their parents. We'd have to blame their parents. It's a human condition. And, you know, actually, once we get on some kind of a path of self-healing and transformation, um, then these things become a gift, Right. They're the gifts. I mean, everything I have, I, I've been teaching all over the world since I got out of prison. You know, how, how long ago is it? Is the 20 or 22, 23 years ago? I've traveled all over the world, literally, and I've led hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of workshops. And, and now I teach online uh, and I reach thousands of people online. And the gift that I have to give to people uh, comes out of my experience, my path through my own suffering and addiction, my path of healing, dealing with my own traumas my path through prison, all of it is now what I have to bring to the world. So, so our wounds become our gifts, but you know, we have to find our way into healing and, and it really, there's no shortcut to it. We have to do the healing because all that trauma and suffering, it's literally in our neurobiology and, and we have to find ways to heal that. And there's a lot of self-healing methods. We, you know, there's a lot in the meditative traditions that we can use for self-healing. I teach a model of mindfulness called neurosomatic mindfulness, which is a deeply embodied form of mindfulness where I believe we can learn to 
help our have our nervous system heal itself. I, I literally know that because that hole in the gut that I had, I had a raging hole in the gut that I was trying to fill up with with sex and drugs and alcohol and experiences and even spiritual anything I could. And that hole that's that hole's not there anymore. Hasn't been there for quite a while. And that's literally a neurophysiological reality. It's not just a psychological thing, right? And so, you know, or maybe we need to be in some kind of therapy, right? Uh, you know, I think men's work is really powerful. Um, I, I finally, um, did the new warrior training with the mankind project, uh, three years ago, right before the pandemic, the year before the pandemic, I wanted to do it a long time. I, I lead a training called the event, which is a very powerful training that I brought into the prison, uh, because I was in touch with the founder of the event, man named Porter Steinitz. We got into the prison. We did four before I left. And I've been leading it ever since, except we haven't been able to do it during the pandemic. There's no way to do it online, but you know, it, that's not just men's work, but it's you know, it's work that takes you deep into your family of origin stuff and helps you change your relationship to it. It begins a path of healing for for really hundreds and hundreds of people begin their path of healing through that through that training. It's a very very intense group process, and you know uh, the work the Mankind Project does is very similar with men. And so I'd heard about their trainings for a long time, and we even had some relationships with it and I'd want and they have a great prison program as well called the Jericho project. Well, they have a number of them. There's a Jericho project in Massachusetts and there's another version of it that's been out in Folsom prison in California. In fact, there's an incredible uh, movie made of that called the work, I think, or something like that about the mankind project in Folsom prison. But, you know, I really believe we need initiation. We need other men. We need mentors. Um, you know, and so I think, you know, self-healing, some kind of initiatory, uh, process and uh, all these things. There's so many things out there we can work with today. And, and, I, and I think for men, I think we really, you know, there's a lot of men, you know, Robert Black talked a lot about this in the men's movement, even back in the eighties and nineties, that a lot of us, you know, confuse men and then socially get even more confused because, you know, the definitions of what masculine is and, you know, being broad brush with the, you know, the masculine is in of itself toxic in some way, which is crazy. Um, but, you know, so a lot of men were, were looking to, to women to try to get their kind of initiatory experience or their healing. And women can be very powerful in our lives. And a divine feminine moving through that is very much part of our overall maturation process. But men need men to heal. I personally believe that men need men to heal. I mean, our, our original blessings of confirmation and initiation ideally would come from our father. But many of us didn't get that. You know, my father was an amazing man, World War II uh, pilot and, you know, came through all that. But he and I just, you know, it was that generational thing of the counterculture. And we, he just, you know, he's a good man, but I couldn't receive it from him. He couldn't give it to me. It was really my first spiritual teacher that really first gave me that kind of transmission and that kind of initiatory confirmation, the blessing of the father, the blessing of the king. Right. And so I think we need that as men to heal our soul and heal our being and, and to really be able to do our work in that way. Yeah. And that's really what we're, you know, what we're trying to create, you know, create here by having, you know, obviously experts in, in, in world changers like yourself on here. And, you know, we, we have community and groups and, and, and all the sort. I wanted to ask you about 12 steps and how it kind of aligns with some of your teachings. Now, I know you said you, you went through it, you know, in, in, in your own recovery, in your own journey. And, you, you know, you participate. I think you said you led some groups in there as well. But there's one thing that has always jumped out at me at, at 12 steps. First of all, I'm not here to disrespect them. I believe that they've done more for the addiction community in the last hundred years than any other organization. And it has literally changed millions of people's lives. So I'm not here knocking anything that they're doing, but there's a small thing within their teaching that I have a disagreement with based around my own personal philosophy and kind of some of the things that we teach in our course and, 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 and in our curriculum. And it's that submission of the addiction. Like you don't have power, like every day you have to recognize like this thing is bigger than me and has control over me. And I see an element of victimhood in that. That's how I see it. So I'm just curious with you, with somebody that wrote the book on radical responsibility, but has also gone through their 12 steps. How did the two align? And is there any disconnect between what they're teaching and what you're talking about with radical responsibility? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I agree with you. I think that movement is, is helped more people suffering from addiction and alcoholism than any other movement. It, not, nobody else has done anything even close, right? Not even close. And um, so I'm a, I'm a big uh, supporter and believer. And I have some friends to this day, close friends that are deep into that work and their sponsors and, and teachers of that work. And that's their spiritual path, basically. Um, so I have a lot of respect for it. Uh, when I was originally involved in it, because I was, you know, uh, kind of a recovering Catholic growing up in the pre-Vatican II Catholic middle class family in the 50s, right? That fire and brimstone kind of blame and shame kind of theology, which fortunately they've changed, um, but uh, for the most part. But at any rate, um, 
you know, I didn't align with that. And, you know, I, I and I was definitely a Buddhist. I, I think I've probably been a Buddhist for lifetimes as there is such a thing as multiple lifetimes. And, but anyway, here I am doing a 12 step work and there's a lot of God language, you know, and, and Buddhism is a non-theistic tradition. It's not atheist. It just doesn't define, you know, uh, a personhood around the sacred, right. Or the unconditional. And, um, so, um, you know, I struggle with that language because, you know, the 12 step was developed, mm-hmm. Dr. Bob and Bill W. in kind of a Christian context in milieu Cri- back then. So it had those influences. Yeah. You know, if you read the the big book of narcotics anomalies, it's a little less so because it came along later. But it also still, I think it lacks a little of the depth of the Alcoholics Anonymous big book, which is still a fabulous resource. But I, I struggle with that. So I was kind of doing these internal gymnastics, trying to figure out how to retranslate some of that stuff into my Buddhist sensibilities and understanding. And, you know, I struggled with it a bit. And what is higher power? I don't, you know, higher higher power, you know, the idea of that. And, and you know, I realized I had, you know, you know, there's a lot of similarities in the Buddhist path, really, because the, the first part of the Buddhist path is really about uh just cleaning up your act and becoming an adult, becoming an integrated adult human being who's not running around making a lot of messes and can basically stand on her own two feet, right? And and lead an ethical life. And then then the the next whole big the um, that's called you know the the basic yana in Buddhism and you know that's a very very deep path in of itself. And and then there's the Mahayana path, which is really much more about service. And then you get into you know Vajrayana. If you are part of a Vajrayana school of Buddhism, it involves all the inner technologies, the really powerful inner yogic stuff. But at any rate, if if you look at the twelve step path, it's it's really about you know uh, take ownership, clean up, and then you know eventually uh, service. You know the twelve step is all about service, and that's one of the critical parts of that journey is really that transition into service, right? But so I, w- I was struggling with all that. And finally, I said, I'm, I'm going to quit trying to figure it out. I'm just going to let the two things be there. I mean, let them bounce up against each other and do what they do. And I'm just going to, you know, let that happen. And then at one point, I figured out this higher power thing. Like, well, I, you know, I don't have, you know, I have like a personal deity or God isn't, isn't my spirituality. And um, even though, you know, Buddhism is not materialism, it definitely believes in, you know, an unconditional, eternal present and nowness and, and sacredness and that life is not, you know, life is imbued with a, a, a deeper reality for sure. It's just not, we don't choose to personify that or call that at least the Buddha didn't. So, but I finally figured out that for me, my higher power was that raging hole in my gut, that that was my higher power. And that's where I had to go. I had to be willing to go into the depth of that. And that became my journey to embrace that hole in my gut and go there and find the bottom of it. Right. So that became my higher power. And that and that really worked for me. Right. And so, um, you know, I got out of prison and I mean, I was extremely active in that for 14 and 14 years. I, I did 14 years in prison, six months in a halfway house and on house arrest. So for 14 years, every week um, up there for the for the meetings, I was leading 12 step study groups with uh, with other I was sponsoring guys deeply involved studying the books every day. You know, I was deeply involved in that path. And when I got out, I started going to the meetings. And, um, you know, uh, I was in Boulder, Colorado, a lot of meetings there, active community. I didn't quite find one that I could, was completely resonating with. And I might have been able to eventually, but also I was in an opposition because, you know, I, you know, I've been a, 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 you know, my, my sponsor in that work originally told me, say, hey, hey, you know, he pulled me aside early on when I met him early on in my time there. He said, you know, if you really want this to work for you, um, you need to be somebody who's making it available to others. That's the key. If you really want this to work for you, become somebody that makes it available to others. And I really got that. And so here I was on the outside and I was basically a consumer again of the program. Right. I, w- I wasn't going to be able to get deeply involved because I was too deeply involved in my own Buddhist path and all the and all that goes along with that, as well as everything else I was doing. So there was no way I was going to become a, a super active AA person who was there hosting meetings. And, you know, so that just so I was, so was going to. And somehow. So. You know, I, I went to meetings off and on for a couple of years, but I, but at that point, I also realized alcohol just wasn't an issue for me. I had not the slightest inclination to go to drugs, right? You know, I still have a mildly addictive person. I wouldn't say it's completely gone away. You know, I have to regulate myself to not go for the extra page. Oh, I don't eat potato chips anyway, but the extra whatever, right? You know, my, my food thing, you know, I, I it, it's well under control. I stay in good shape. I'm, I, you know, I have my weight really at pretty ideal level. So I keep it under control, but I have a tendency so, you know, over, over, you know, so it, it's not completely gone from my psyche that, but, but I have not this, I, I have, I have not, which I have not had any issues with alcohol and not slice and clinician drugs. So, so it's just not my issue anymore. And that is one place where I differ with AA a little bit. 
Uh, and and I, I don't really know the truth is, you know, like a part of what you hear in a 12 step work is once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, once an addict, always an addict, you know, you're a recovering alcoholic, you're a recovering addict, but you're, you're one misstep away from a, a relapse, right? Well, I know I'm not one misstep away from a relapse, right? And I think I'm sure there are some of the, like I met, I happened, my sponsor was very well connected in AA and he brought some guys into the prison who are like the real AA heavyweights, the ones that tour the country and have become highly accomplished people out in the world. And, and they're the big, uh, the circuit riders that do the, you know, and I, a couple of them were amazing. And I know they didn't think they were one step away from a relapse, but that's probably, but they probably, you know, don't necessarily share that. You wouldn't go to an AA meeting and go, I'm cured, right? That's, that's not the message, right? So I think that that's a little problematic, but still. You know, I think in general, for for a lot of people, they are one step away from a relapse for a long time, and maybe some people forever, right? And so, you know, God bless them. That 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 program is fabulous. And uh, uh, you know, if I ever got in trouble, I'd be right back there because I love that work and I love that community. But fortunately, I haven't got back in trouble with alcohol or drugs. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's great, and I think I think we I think we're I, I think we're on the same wavelength here, and I think we're seeing it exactly exactly the same. You know, we we send our work you know, the recovery side of things that we do here around an identity change, like you're becoming the man that is no longer into porn. And it kind of goes with what you were talking about with some of this neurosomatic mindfulness, like it changes who you are at the neurophysiological level, like you become a different person. Um, and I think I think it's in that process that you're going to go from that recovering addict to now the recovered, like I no longer have to identify that. And, and I think that in of itself is one of the most empowering things that anybody can do that is struggling with an addiction, struggling with a compulsive behavior is once they go through that, that, that identity change of seeing themselves becoming that new person. And that's now how they identify and how they show up in the world. That is what we try to help, help our men do. And I think it's right aligned with, with what you were getting to here. I definitely want to dive into, you know, some of the tactics in, 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 in the book here with the remaining time that we, we, we do have. So can you maybe define radical responsibility? Yeah. The way I usually describe it is voluntarily embracing 100% responsibility or ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life. Now that includes all the circumstances that if we're honest, we can see we do have some relationship to, you know, we, we actually caused them or we co-created them or we contributed to them or, or maybe we enabled them or we allowed them just by not paying attention. We stumbled into it. We're unawares or, you know, there's, or we have some underlying, you know, unconscious scripts where we're setting ourselves up unconsciously for things, self-sabotage scripts and so forth. So a lot of it we can see we do have some relationship to. And when we look at that, we're really looking for that not to blame ourselves. The most important distinction in this model is the distinction between ownership and blame. What I'm talking about with radical responsibility and ownership has absolutely nothing to do with blaming others, obviously, but has not one iota to do with blaming ourselves. And it's not about blaming victims. It's purely about putting our energy where we have any really power. And that's with ourselves, right? It's living a choice. It's, it could be called radical self-empowerment. So when we look in to see where's our relationship to the circumstances that we're in, we're only trying to find that for the purpose of learning. Because if I can see I'm in a situation that I'm not happy about, well, how did I get there? I went from A to B to C to D. Well, if I can understand that, then I can do something differently. I can, I can turn left instead of right next time. I can make a different decision, get a different result. And then there may be circumstances that as radically honest as we get, we can't see we had anything to do with it. Right. It just feels like it fell out of the sky and landed on our on our lap. And everyone, everyone would agree. It may, it may be something that's incredibly unjust. Nonetheless, and it may be completely normal that people, um, people are victimized in life. There's no doubt about that. Terribly, horribly victimized. And they may need to have that validated and really be supported in that. But at some point, if we stay stuck in that sense of victimization and build an identity around that, it's going to be incredibly limiting to our lives. So at some point, the salient question is here, this thing is in my life. And, you know, maybe it shouldn't happen to anybody. Maybe I had nothing to do with it. But at some point, the saying question is, what am I going to do with it? It is in my life. Now, what am I going to do with it? What's the most creative way I can respond to this so I can move forward in my life in a way that's beneficial for myself and others, right? And not get trapped in this experience of victimization. And of course, not only, you know, do we go there when we experience really serious victimization, but we all go there all day long around all the garden variety of stuff. We, you know, if you pay attention to your mind, you're going in and out of that victim mindset all day long, right? And a lot of us feel like life is just constantly happening. We feel a victim of our conditioning. We feel a victim of life. We feel a victim of the government. Circumstances, life is happening to us. I'm just trying to survive and cope and I'm the victim and everybody, you know, it's like, and, and it's just all pervasive, right? And And the problem is, you know, and you can see with a lot of circumstances, like, you know, let me give you an example. Let, let's say, let's say you and I were in business together 
and then something goes wrong and you know and it's all disrupted and it's falling apart and 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 we're in a big blame fest i'm convinced it's all your fault you're convinced it's all my fault we're ready to go to fisticuffs or we're going to we're starting to lawyer up we're going to go to court and fortunately we have a friend that that says no no come on you guys don't want to do that you know you, you get a mediator i know this mediator and, and you know you can do this and get beyond this and you know you may you may be done with each other but you can get beyond this without you know going to jail or without spending all your money on lawyers so we both kind of reluctantly agree and i'm more confident of course i know i'm right you're a little nervous because you're not so sure you're right you know but but anyway then we go to this mediator right and the mediator listens to each of us independently and then brings us together and says boy i i don't know you're both incredibly um uh, convincing people and salespeople. And, you know, it's a, he said, he said thing. I'm not sure what to do, but I'll tell you what, we have the videotape and I'm going to go put together a focus group of really smart people that don't know either one of you couldn't care, give a hoot about either one of you. And we're going to see what they have to say. So, you know, well, okay. All right. So mediator does that comes back and looks at me and says, well, you know, I have to say they did agree that, uh, that, you know, the other party carries the most of the blame here. And, and, uh, and I go, boy, I'm so glad you found such a brilliant group of people. And they realize it's all his fault. They realize it's all Frank's fault. And, uh, you know, the media said, well, no, actually, please, no, they did say, you know, you you have about, you know, 30 percent, 40 percent. And I thought, well, I don't believe it. But as long as they agree, it's all his fault or mostly his fault. The media keeps pushing me on it. OK, all right. I probably did have some small part to play. I'll 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 own that. I don't know if it comes up to 30 or 40, but I'll have some part. But as long as they agree, it was mostly his fault. And I feel vindicated. I feel good about it. Like, does that really make sense? Because if I'm convinced, I'm unhappy by definition, right? I'm really unhappy about this situation. And if I'm convinced that it's 30% your fault, 40% your fault, 60%, whatever it is, how much of my power am I giving away to you? All of it. Really all of it. You could say 30, 40, but really in a sense, it's all of it because I just put you in charge of my internal state. I don't get to change and feel differently until you change. Can I control you? No, no. not if I don't allow you to. No, I can't control you. I can't control you. And so I've just given away all my power. And that's the problem with blame. We give away our power. It doesn't work. You know, part of one of the models I that's with, you know, is kind of underlies radical responsibility. It's also part of that event training that I mentioned before. There's been a lot of influences that have come into this model. I draw from a lot of resources. Um, but one of the, the distinctions goes all the way back to Professor W. Edward Deming, who was uh, responsible for the economic resurgence of Japan after World War II, considered the father of American manufacturing. If anybody knows anything about manufacturing, anything about uh, Six Sigma or Lean Manufacturing, Kaizen, Continuous Improvement. That's kind of from him, right? And and he was the efficiency guy and the quality guy. This is back in the 50s and 60s. And he used to use a little diagram. He had a line across a piece of paper. And above the line, he put responsibility. Could be ownership, responsibility. And below the line, he had, his model was simpler. He had, he had blame, I think justification, and shame. Blame, justification, shame. What he meant by shame was blaming yourself, right? Now, when, in my model, we talk about blame, justification. Um, uh, we talk about blame, justification, being right, being hooked on being right, expensive being in relationship and so forth. Um, blame shifting, justifying your own behaviors, shame yourself, any of that stuff is, is down there. Now, his whole thing about it, he wasn't demonizing any of those behaviors. He just said they're inefficient. They're a complete waste of energy. They don't take you anywhere. And he's in the world of manufacturing, right? So, you know, if you're dealing with, you know, production issues, manufacturing issues, quality efficiency issues, all the time you spend blaming others, justifying your own, you know, thing, uh, beating yourself up about it, being right, any of those things, it's a complete waste of time. The only place you can accomplish anything is responsibility, taking ownership, right? So, you know, it, it's really the thing about, not taking that level of ownership is we're giving our power away. Now we're all going to do it to a degree, but you know, fortunately over time, fortunately we spend less time doing it. You know, I reckon, okay, I realize I'm complaining. All right, time to get off and get back. What can I do? You know, I say the magical radical responsibility question is what can I do? Because no matter how much I'm stewing and sense of powerlessness and it's not my fault and all these problems and you know, it's horrible. And my boss is a jerk and I can just take a breath and go, okay, this sucks. What can I do? Immediately, I'm back in the mindset of possibility, solution-based thinking, 
And there's a million things we can do. There's a million ways we can approach life, approach any individual, approach a boss, approach a colleague, approach a situation. We're back in a solution-based thinking. We're focusing our energy where it can do the most good with our own process, with our own behaviors, with our own thought, and with our choices. What are the choices I can make to move my life forward here? Because if I'm basing it on all the choices I think other people should be making, you know, it ain't going to happen. You know, maybe I have a sense of entitlement. Everybody's supposed to do what I want them to do. Well, you know, great, but it ain't going to happen. How's that working for you? <laughs> you know, uh, it's the most it's the most empowering question you can ask yourself. Like in any situation, any moment, any circumstance, what can I do right now to improve this? Not fix the problem, but begin moving one step forward to a solution. Man, I love that, and I hope people wrote that down. Anytime you're stuck, you catch yourself in that victimhood. Flip it. What 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 can I do? I do want to touch on mindfulness here here for a moment. I know we have a few a few short minutes left, um, but I kind of touched on it at, at the beginning. Like the book really kind of caught me off guard there right at the beginning with the entire first section talking about this kind of inner meditative practice, this mindfulness. So talk about why that's such a focus in in your book and in your work, and what role does mindfulness play in taking ownership or in taking responsibility? Well, I'm really happy that mindfulness in a secular sense is founded into the mainstream of our society. Mindfulness is now being taught to, to children in K-12 education. It's in Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies. It's in the military. We take it in through my organization. We take it into the world of corrections, criminal justice. And it, it's it's really everywhere because it's very yeah, simple what is, practice. What is mindfulness? Maybe defining it for people that don't yeah. that, that so, are, are hearing it for so the first time. Mindfulness meditation is just training the mind to be present. That's all it is. Training the mind to be more present. And we do so trying to imbue as we're bringing attention to ourselves and training our attention, we're imbuing that with self-acceptance and self-compassion in simple terms. That's, that's mindfulness, but the importance of it, why it's so important is because, and there are different forms of mindfulness. There's the kind of classic mindfulness that comes out of the Buddhist tradition. There's the secular mindfulness, which is that's where it originated from. But you know, a simple mindfulness practice would be sit down in a chair, right? You know, Maybe lower your gaze so you can focus more. Close your eyes if you want, but I teach eyes open meditation, but lower your gaze so you're less distracted. And then intentionally focus your attention on feeling your body, feeling the breath. And then, of course, what's going to happen? The mind's going to wander. You're going to get distracted by thoughts. You notice that, you bring it back, back to the body, back to the breath. Mind wanders again, you bring it back. Mind wanders, you bring it back. You don't beat yourself about it wandering. That's what the mind does. You just keep bringing it back, bring it back. Every time you bring it back, you're building the muscle of mindfulness. You're really changing your brain. You're developing neural pathways that support better focus, better concentration, more attention stabilization, right? Which is then the golden pathway into awareness, right? So there are lots of ways to train yourself in mindfulness. That's kind of the simple classic one. And all the world's traditions have always had some kind of mind training. All the, all the major religions have had some kind of inner contemplative training, uh, the indigenous traditions, the world philosophical traditions. And, and so, but the importance of it is to have some kind of awareness practice, some kind of self-reflective awareness practice. Because if we don't have the ability to be aware of our own thoughts, aware of our own emotional triggers, aware of our own habitual patterns in, in the moment, now, it's one thing to be real. Yeah, I was thinking crazy yesterday and I robbed a bank and went to jail. Okay, but no, could you be aware of it in a moment and then make a different choice, right? You know, so being aware in a moment of our of our thoughts, our thought patterns, our behaviors, you know, how, how thought patterns lead to feelings and impulses that lead to behaviors that lead to consequences and impact for others, right? So to have awareness of that in the moment in real time, right? When we don't have that, we're like walking through a, a minefield blindfolded. Our life is like walking through a minefield blindfolded. And when we get in relationships that trigger all of our stuff, we're really in a minefield blindfolded. And often you have two people in, a, you know, in the same minefield dancing around together, both blindfolded, and, and they end up in chaos and drama and you know, divorce. Well, what do you expect, right? So you know, I, it's just a basic human skill that's so essential. And that's why I'm so glad that it's being mainstreamed now, because just having the ability to really begin to develop that self-understanding and self-insight to get, oh, I get why I'm feeling this way. Well, first of all, I know I'm feeling. Like, I actually get, oh, I'm, I'm kind of angry. I'm irritated at the moment or I'm sad or, you know, instead of being in denial of that or ignoring it, right? Being in our body and being willing to feel, right? A lot of our social problems today come because we're not willing to feel. You know, we've been in the middle of the, of the worst opioid epidemic in history. I don't know what's been going on with that during the pandemic. I'm sure it hasn't gotten better, but that's because we're all inculturated not to feel. You know, if you're feeling any pain, pop a pill, do something, right? And, you know, if we want to be alive, we have to be willing to feel. You know, our addictions are about not feeling. We act out and all our addictions are because we don't want to feel our pain. 
We want to escape whatever kind of trauma, feeling stuff is going on. And so we act out. And when it gets, you know, that that it, it starts building up, we start acting out, whether whether it's, you know, drugs, alcohol, porn, gambling, you know, digital addiction, whatever it is, it's because we don't want to feel. So learning to be present, willing to feel and, you know, is the royal road in, into like being conscious and awake and then being able to get in a self-leadership position with ourselves, right? To begin mastering our own neurobiology and be able to self-regulate, using breath to self-regulate. That when we're getting triggered into that fight or flight response, we know how to re-regulate ourselves back into, you know, relational mode. We're always getting triggered into that kind of fear and survival reactive mode, right? And then we respond from there, not very intelligently and create all kinds of messes in life. So how do I get back into proactive, relational, responsive mode with a well-regulated brain? Well, I use awareness, mind training, and breath. And it changes everything about our lives. It's like the difference between being, you know, in the in in the engine driving the train and being back in, in the caboose with with you know a couple of wheels missing and, and bouncing all over the tracks, right? You know, and that's what our life often feels to us. Like my one of my, my again my first meditation teacher from Premche used to say, either we learn to ride the donkey, which is you, you know a, a metaphor for our conditioned mind, all our conditioning and all the rest of it, or we either learn to ride the donkey or the donkey rides us. And I tell that to guys who are in prison all the time, because that donkey rode you right into this prison and I keep bringing you back here until you learn to ride that donkey. So how do we learn to ride the donkey through mind training and mindfulness? And that's it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and that's why we teach it in, you know, in our courses and in our, in our coaching, it's a huge part of what we do. And I tell the guys like these practices that we're, we're putting you through these, you know, these meditation, mindfulness, it's not that it's going to create this struggle less life like it's not going to make all of your problems going to going to go away you're still going to face the same challenges you're still going to face the same difficulties but what it's doing is it's giving you this set of tools now that you have that in those moments you can deregulate your autonomic nervous system take you out of that fight or flight mode begin to kind of take those thoughts captive and understand why i'm feeling this way and process and navigate through the situation through responsibility so Dr. Fleet Mall, I appreciate you so much. It's been an amazing, amazing conversation, much needed for, for the time that we're in. And I think to kind of touch on the opioid thing that you talked about there, I, I believe based on the, some of the studies that I've seen, like it's shot through the roof here in the last two plus years, because everybody's, like you said, like you talked about trying to fill this, you know, this, 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 this God-sized hole in all of our hearts. Like everybody's trying to fill that with something else. So guys, I want you to go out there and, and, and check out the book, Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fiercely Live Your Highest Purpose and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good. Um, it just goes so much deeper into what we talked about here, the practicality. I love how the book is written kind of in a core structure with assignments at the end and, and sometimes throughout the chapters. Like it's not just a book you sit down and read and consume. It's a workbook that's going to navigate this through you and equip you with those tools. Um, so we have one last question. I know we're I know we're, we're, we're coming close to the end here, but we do have one final question. But before we get to that, uh, Dr. Fleet, where can people connect with you? What, what do you guys have going on this year? What's kind of pressing? And, and, and yeah, where are you kind of hanging out socially? And if people want to learn more about you, where can they find that yeah, stuff out? So people can go to my basic website, fleetmall.com. And that's a good starting point to find out about everything else. But if they want to find out about my online courses, including the online course I have based on the Radical Responsibility book, they can go to heartmind.co, heartmind.co. That's where I have all my online courses and the summits that we do. We have a big summit going on right now, the best year of your life. It's a 10-day summit we do every January to help people relaunch themselves. And uh, that's going on right now. It's towards the end, but you can still jump on. Well, you, by the time this air will be over, but you can actually still get the lifetime access package you want and enjoy it all. So that's bestyear.life, bestyear.life. And then if people are interested in the prison work that I do, uh, the work we do with prisoners is prisonmindfulness.org. The work we do with correctional officers, probation officers, other first responders and police is at mindfulpublicsafety.org. And, uh, you know, so that's kind of that's kind of the universe. But you can start off at fleetmall.com and find your way to most of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And guys, we'll get all that information plugged down there in the in the show notes. Dr. Mall, I just want to you know acknowledge you here and, and, and tip my hat for the work that you've done here for 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 the world and, and the work that you're continuing to do for you to be able to take your story, take what you've gone through and flip it and turn it into a real force of change and empowerment of good for the world. Um, it's something that is truly recognized and, and appreciated, at least by me and I know by our entire audience here. So we're really grateful to have you on the show. So as we bring it home here, we like to end every single episode with with this question. And it's it's centered around kind of the theme of the show. So the title of the show is The Superman Life. You know, it's been a product of really, you know, much like your work is your transformation now turned into a force for good. That's kind of what this is about. And it for me, you know, you, you talked about some of your beliefs. Like I, I, I do come from the place or or the belief system that I do believe we're all created for a purpose. There's a calling on each one of our lives. 
Uh, but that's only half of the equation. Like we then have to take the responsibility to develop those skills and find what that purpose is and then pursue it through the, through the lens of service oriented good work every single day. So when you take those two, when you take the belief that you have a purpose or calling on your life, and then you take radical responsibility and you mash them together, that's what I, that's what I believe, or that's how I begin to really see living a superhuman life. So I'd love to get the guest take. So as, uh, as we bring it to close here, Dr. Maul, how would you define living a superhuman life? You know, I like to think of that uh, being a human being is about training and that I'm, I'm going to be in training the rest of my life. You know, I'm, I'm training to be a human being. I'm training to become a fully integrated human being who can serve the world uh, with wisdom and compassion and then training to die. You know, I hope I'm training up to my very last breath, you know, and and so, you know, that's the work of being a human being. It's not about coping. It's not about going to school and then you're done and then you just, you know, live your life. I feel we're here to thrive. We're here to grow. We're all here to become superhuman beings. Uh, I love the book that George Leonard wrote years ago called Mastery. He got into a keto late in his life and really fell in love with the practice. It wasn't so much about the result. It was the practice of mastery. Mastery isn't necessarily a place you're going to get to, but you appreciate you're, you're wanting to master life. You're wanting to master your, your own neurobiology. You're wanting to master being good in relationship. You want, you know, it's just that spirit of where we're lifelong learners always stepping into the next level of our learning. And with that, that lofty goal of mastery, again, not as a destination, but just being in that spirit of never settling, like, oh, that's good enough. You know, not, never settling for that's good enough. Like I can grow, you know, and thrive. And, and throughout my lifespan, we know neurobiologically today from current neuroscience that the brain can continue to grow and thrive until you're 100 and beyond if you, if you keep using it and keep working it. No, that's oh, that's so beautiful said and, and, and never heard it framed uh, through through that perspective. So you guys heard it out there. Stop blaming, take responsibility, learn and train. And, and that's what we're all here for and continue to do it until the day that you're taking uh, taken from this earth. So Dr. Maul, we appreciate you guys. If you're out there and you want to continue to help us grow and support this mission, you can support this show in one of two ways. First off, if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, wherever, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and written review. But more importantly, guys out there, if there's somebody in your life that is maybe going through some of this victimhood, maybe going through passing off blame in their own life to somebody else, do them the favor or do us the favor and then the blessing of sharing this conversation. But for Dr. Fleet Maul, Frank Rich, we love you guys and we'll see you next week.